Today, I'm also issuing an executive order that will ultimately end the Justice Department's use of private prisons, an industry that houses pretrial detainees and federal prisoners. The executive order directs the Attorney General to decline to renew contracts with privately operated criminal facilities, a step we started to take at the end of the Obama administration and was reversed under the previous administration. This is the first step to stop corporations from profiting off of incarcerating incarceration that is less humane and less safe, as the studies show. Hello, welcome. I'm Ben Boyce, and this is The Dr. Junkie Show. And today's episode is a genealogical trip through the invention and the evolution of prisons for profit. Our current system of private prisons started back in the 1980s. But the idea of privatizing criminal corrections, it's actually older than the United States. Some of the earliest examples go all the way back to 1718, when Britain passed the Transportation Act and started sending convicted criminals to America for things like burglary, robbery, perjury, forgery, or theft. The terms of imprisonment then were set at seven years, and they were offered as an alternative to hanging. Things were quite a bit different back then when it came to criminal corrections. There was no massive penitentiaries, no new jail projects in every town. Crimes like poaching, illegal fishing, or stealing silverware, they were often punishable by death. So people convicted of those crimes often begged to go to America as an alternative, even though they knew what that meant. To get across the ocean, convicted people were chained below deck in massive ships that were usually captained by slave traders. The British correctional system paid captains five pounds, that's British dollars, for each body they transported, an amount that wasn't enough to make it worth anyone's while. So Parliament also granted contractors the right to profit off the work of those on their boats. They gave them all the possible profits that could be made for that seven years of banishment. That's right, when your racist uncle says there were white slaves too, he isn't entirely wrong. Of course, what convicted criminals went through wasn't the same thing as what black slaves experienced. For one, we usually did something to get sentenced to forced labor. Two, it had an expiration date, at which time white folks would be released. And three, it wasn't an entire institution built around skin color. Once they finished that term of servitude, white people who had worked as incarcerated laborers were treated with the same rights as other white people. But while enslaved, working in living conditions were quite similar to what black slaves often experienced. Convicted criminals were sold in auctions, the government, in this case Britain, didn't really care what happened to them, and they were usually even referred to as slaves. In fact, many plantation owners actually preferred convict labor because that way they wouldn't have to support the enslaved in old age, since, presumably, by that point they would be freed. So for a long time, business was booming. Britain actually used this new system of forced servitude strategically to provide laborers to colonies that probably couldn't have been constructed as fast without them. Next to African people who were brought here as slaves... Convicted felons represented the biggest group to immigrate to America between 1718 and 1775, more than 50,000 of us in total. Nearly a quarter of all British immigrants to America during the 1700s were people who were brought here to work as convicted criminals. 
Now, to be fair, we almost went back too far in time to start this conversation. Of course, the American Revolution happened in 1775, ending Britain's import of convicted laborers. One of the first big moves in U.S. politics was the overhauling of the death penalty. Early U.S. lawmakers wanted to replace state-sanctioned killing for petty crimes with more Protestant penalties, like being forced into labor to instill work ethic. Pennsylvania was the first state to put these new ideas into law, replacing capital punishment with public hard labor for petty crimes like theft. The first convicted laborers in the United States were called wheelbarrow men, and they worked on state highways, in forts, and even in mines, you guessed it, pushing wheelbarrows. The idea was to both punish the convicted while also using them as an example to others who would see them and be dissuaded from committing those same crimes. But of course, their work also saved the state a bunch of money that it might otherwise have been using to put free laborers into those positions. Now this system didn't last long, because in the early days, wheelbarrow men were unpopular and often completely undisciplined. They were often drunk and rowdy, they escaped, and they frequently committed additional crimes. Alexander Hamilton and his wife were actually robbed by wheelbarrow men in Philadelphia during the first Constitutional Convention. So this particular system of convict labor fell into disfavor with the public pretty quick. The problem, according to many, was the publicness of the labor. Seeing convicted criminals doing these tasks to shame them, well, that might dissuade others from signing up to do that labor for pay. The public might come to see hard labor as shameful in and of itself, and that's not a Protestant belief at all. Enter the House of Repentance, an idea proposed by Constitution signer Benjamin Rush. He foresaw an enclosed private space where criminals would go to reflect on their bad choices while working to profit the state. The penitentiary was born in 1795 in Philadelphia's Walnut Street Jail, which was renovated and enlarged to hold more people and to include space for workshops. Before that in the United States, like in Britain, long periods of imprisonment weren't really a thing. People would be tossed in jail until a court decided what to do with them, usually public shaming, public beatings, or death. But near the end of the 18th century, that all changed. To encourage local judges and courts to follow the same principle and to send their convicted criminals to Walnut Street, the laws were updated to call for any profit made by an incarcerated person to be split between the prison and the local jurisdiction that sent them there. That's right. Prison for profit didn't show up after the penitentiary. It was the penitentiary. Walnut Street workers made nails and shoes, they spun and wove fabrics, and they chipped wood and cut stone. They sold the products they produced to local businesses, trying to turn a profit. But Walnut Street never got the recipe quite right. That didn't matter, though, because in the meantime, ten other nearby states had caught on and built their own Philly-inspired penitentiaries in the years that followed Walnut Street. So despite their best efforts, these early penitentiaries never managed to turn a substantial profit. And they pissed a lot of people off. Remember, Philadelphia is in the north, and slavery was already being phased out there. A lot of citizens saw the Revolutionary War as a war against forced labor, at least for white folks. Many of the imprisoned resisted as well. In 1797, Walnut Street was expanded, 
And those inside promptly burned down the new factory. They didn't want to work there. In other states, a wave of crime was blamed on the penitentiary because many saw it as a breeding ground for criminals, a place where they are grouped together and they can share their tricks. But the phasing out of slavery in the North also proved to be an important argument for the penitentiary in that style of forced labor. See, just because white Northerners wanted to abolish slavery didn't mean that they looked at black folks as equals. Many bought the argument that the penitentiary would keep newly freed black folks in line, and the disproportionate incarceration rates of black people started right away, usually in forced labor penitentiaries. In New York, for example, 15 years after slavery was abolished, the rate of black men in prison was 10 times that of black men in public. So it's the early 1800s, prison labor is more common than ever, but penitentiaries still aren't making the profits that they've promised to their citizens. And when they toyed with the idea of leasing out prisoners to local business owners, they encountered hesitation because business owners saw prisoners as unsafe, unruly, dangerous. They figured they'd lose their investment when the incarcerated workers burned down the building, like happened on Walnut Street. So in 1825, what would come to be known as the Auburn Prison System was born in New York, the first state to institute a strict system of silence disciplined with violence. Anyone caught talking, using sign language, making hand signals, or communicating in any way would be whipped, starved, or tied up in painful positions. Prisons became silent spaces of torture and forced labor. And with this new enforced calm, business owners felt better about setting up shop and using those convicted criminals as cheap laborers. Manufacturers who set up there paid the prison half of what they would have paid a free laborer for the same work. And voila, in 1831, Auburn became the first penitentiary to turn out a profit. But it wouldn't be the last. Once profits were possible, other states picked back up the idea of forced labor, and they, too, followed the Auburn model that had been so successful. Connecticut's Weathersfield Prison brought in $8,000 during its first year operating on the Auburn model. That's more than $200,000 in today's money. The Baltimore Penitentiary brought in $44,000 during its first year, around $1.2 million in today's money. In the 25 years after Auburn opened, 14 other states built penitentiaries based on their model. Our first prison boom in the United States was in full swing. New York and the northern states might have engineered the penitentiary, but Louisiana and the southern states made it mainstream. One of the biggest problems people in the South had with the system was the possibility that it could undercut the current slave labor economy by competing with it. To avoid this public pushback, Louisiana set up its penitentiary industry to work alongside slavery. Incarcerated workers made cheap shoes for slaves, and they took the cotton picked by slaves and turned it into thread, cloth, or textiles. To avoid posing a threat to white supremacy, those in charge of penitentiaries made sure that they supported white supremacy. And it worked. In just a single year, Louisiana's penitentiary system made the state more than $5,000 in profits from the production of cotton cloth alone. An economic depression hit in the late 1830s, and by the 1840s, Louisiana's penitentiary system was starting to be seen as a burden. So in 1844, 
they privatized their entire prison system, leasing it to a company called McHatton, Pratt, and Ward. At first, the state didn't charge the company anything. They basically traded the responsibility for feeding, clothing, and housing those inside for whatever profit the company could make off their forced labor. But that system didn't last once the profits started rolling in. Ten years later, the state raised their fee to a quarter of whatever the company made, and seven years after that, they raised it to half. And here's where the twisted incentive to incarcerate people for profit really showed up. Louisiana only had to arrest, convict, and sentence someone to prison in 1850, and then start collecting checks on them every year that they didn't die. Unfortunately, they often did die. Much of the work assigned to incarcerated people has always been work that others don't want to do. In the 1840s and 50s, Louisiana laborers often worked in swamps, building levees, or setting anchors for railroads. They were beaten, starved, and tortured by those in charge. But the bosses and the politicians didn't care. Whenever an incarcerated laborer died, the company leasing them no longer had to pay for them, and they could just request a new worker from the state. In 1848, Texas joined the penitentiary bandwagon, and within five years, their prison system was actually the largest factory in the entire state. By 1857, Louisiana's penitentiary system was making $44,000 in profit every year, $1.2 million in today's money, or $4,000 per imprisoned person. In 1861, when Louisiana declared its secession from the United States, their penitentiary became part of the war machine, producing wagons, carriages, tents, armor, bullets, wheelbarrows, anything soldiers needed. When Union troops took over Baton Rouge during that war in 1862, they took over the penitentiary and they forced those inside to make uniforms and tents for them. And when those same Union soldiers were run off by returning Confederates a few weeks later, they burned the prison down on their way out and released everyone inside before leaving destroying one of the South's major sources for equipment. So the Civil War ends, and the prison system in the South, like many institutions in the South, it collapses. It's been designed to operate alongside slavery, but without the constant flow of cheap, raw materials, there was no way to make a profit without an entire redesign of the system. A man named Samuel James aimed to change that when he bought a plantation on the Mississippi River in Louisiana's West Feliciana Parish. The plantation was known as Angola. It was named for the country of origin of many of the people who had been enslaved there before the Civil War, back when it had produced 3,100 bales of cotton every year, one of the largest crops in the South. Samuel James wanted to produce even more than that, so he tried to get Louisiana to follow the lead of Mississippi, who had leased its prisoners out to a private cotton grower, and Georgia, who'd leased its out to railroad builders, and Alabama, who'd leased them to firms throughout the South that worked them in mines and in railroads. In 1872, Mississippi actually sold its entire prison population into forced labor in a single contract with the Grand Wizard of the KKK, a man named Nathan Bedford. Samuel James followed their lead and struck a similar deal where he got use of every convicted criminal in Louisiana in exchange for an annual payment. He would work them on Angola. 
Within a year, the prison was set up to produce 10,000 bales of cotton, 350 barrels of molasses, 50,000 bricks, and almost 1,000 pair of shoes every day. James got to keep all the profits earned from selling these products, and he made a killing. But by 1873, things were, again, changing. James realized he could make even more money by subletting those same workers out to other companies for a flat rate. So he left the machinery at the prison behind, and he contracted the inmates out to local business owners. By 1890, 27,000 convicted criminals in the South were performing some kind of mandatory labor without pay. In 1886, the U.S. Commissioner of Labor reported that the average revenue of prison labor was four times the cost of actually running a prison. Prisons were unbelievably profitable when run this way. So southern states ramped up bullshit laws to lock more people up, especially black folks. Some states even added clauses that required convicted people to serve time to pay off their cost of conviction. So not only would they have to serve their sentence for the crime, but also additional time for any fees owed which they couldn't pay, often adding years to a small prison sentence and netting the state even more cash when they leased them out. It's an understatement to say prison workers were treated poorly during this period, whipped, starved, exposed, and endangered. When one died, either from torture or from overworking, they were just replaced with another, so the companies had no real reason to take care of them. In just one year in Louisiana, the deadliest year of its convict leasing program, nearly 20% of all incarcerated workers died. That's one in five. Between 1870 and 1901, more than 3,000 convicted prisoners in Angola alone died. In 1870, Alabama officials claimed that more than 40% of their entire population of convicted criminals had died in mining operations. And yet, between 1880 and 1904, Alabama's profits from convict leasing made up a full 10% of the state's budget. In 1874, Tennessee leased out 123 workers under the age of 18, 44 under the age of 16, and one who was only 10 years old. Long story short, eventually all of these issues with human rights added up, and people started to complain about both the evils of making money off of imprisoning people and the issues with unpaid laborers taking jobs from free people. Tennessee would become the first state to outlaw the old system of convict leasing in 1893, but not before they first went to war to preserve it, after a company called TCI was attacked by workers who'd been displaced by prison laborers. The state sent in the National Guard, and eventually they built an army barracks next to the company's headquarters to protect its use of convict laborers. But as you can imagine, all of this was getting really expensive building army posts and manning them with trained soldiers all day? The entire point of convict leasing had been for the state and private business owners to turn a profit. So as it became known as both a cruel institution and as a threat to capitalism, it was forced yet again to update. By the early 1900s, states were steadily banning the use of convict labor. But what to do with all the laborers, many of whom had been casually sent to prison under the old system, with the belief that they would make a profit for the state. Here's what's wild. Instead of moving ahead, we kind of went backwards. Remember, 
When convict labor was originally threatened, it was because people saw it as a threat to slavery. To avoid that appearance, the penitentiary set up shop working alongside with slave labor, and for years that worked fine until slave labor went away. Now, instead of threatening slave labor, prison labor was threatening capitalism. States wondered if they could pull the same trick as they had before. So instead of shutting down operations, they switched to a system where they worked alongside current industries. Most states took control of their prison industries and set them up so they would make products that could only be sold to other institutions, government organizations, or nonprofits. The birth of prison industries was a response to the pushback on free labor, and it worked by unifying the interests of big business and state-owned correctional operations. Enter the chain gang. In 1908, Georgia got rid of its convict leasing system, and nearly 50,000 people convicted of crimes were sent to work on state roads for the state. And by 1923, 88% of Georgia's prisoners were on chain gangs. They were doing about $5 million worth of work, or $73 million in today's money. Between 1904 and 1915, the use of chain gangs on public roads increased the amount of paved streets in Georgia from just 1,600 miles to 13,000. And just like the system of convict leasing that had preceded it, incarcerated workers were treated poorly. Georgia's Governor Gilchrist once described a convict road camp where workers were housed in a wheeled transport vehicle large enough for a single circus animal but containing 10 to 12 men. Workers were also still tortured to encourage productivity, whipped, humiliated, sweatboxed, starved, or even killed. Despite these obvious problems, chain gangs persisted in the South until well into the 1930s. After chain gangs went away, prisoners moved back into the penitentiary. To save money, many states actually had inmates run much of the daily operations in the facilities. In 1967, Arkansas Governor Winthrop Rockefeller described Tucker Prison Farm as run by inmates with whips, 38 caliber revolvers, and shotguns. Being incarcerated at Tucker meant working 10 to 14 hours per day in the fields, growing and harvesting strawberries, rice, and cotton to the tune of $1.4 million every year in profits for the state. And if one incarcerated person shot another who was trying to escape, it usually got them an early release from prison for good behavior. But around this time, technology and media began to show up in ways that they never had before. And like happened with Emmett Till, the public began to bear witness to things that might otherwise have continued indefinitely. When an audio recording from Tucker Prison Farms revealed abuse, mismanagement, and official misappropriation of funds, the writing was on the wall. It was part of a larger story of prisoner abuse in Arkansas, and in other states, and it led to a new warden being hired to run Tucker, a man named Tom Merton, who would basically challenge every aspect of the prison-for-profit model. And like many who came before him, his refusal to stick with the status quo would cost him his career. When he started at Tucker, there were only two free employees in the entire prison on the payroll, a doctor, and a business manager. So as Merton did away with the inmate-run system, he lowered the production and the profits at the same time. The year before he took over, 
Arkansas made nearly $300,000 in profits from their prisons. The year after he took over, they lost nearly $550,000. So in 1968, Tom Merton was fired less than a year after he started. And by 1970, Arkansas would become the first state to have its entire prison system declared cruel and unusual by a federal court, based in large part on the pushback against Morton's updates after he was fired. So quick summary, Tom Merton shows up to overhaul the prison for profit system in 1967. He hires a ton of CEOs and he gets rid of much of the cruelty, but he also costs the state a ton of cash. So he's replaced by Bob Sarver in 1968. And Sarver is all about that old school abusive system of forced labor. His leadership led to the 1970 Federal Declaration of Cruel and Unusual Prisons, and that got him fired. All that to introduce a name that's well known in the private prison for profit world to this day, Terrell Don Hudo, who was warden of Ramsey Prison Plantation in Texas in 1970. He was called in to take over Arkansas, and eventually he would become a partner in one of the largest private prison corporations in the world, a for-profit group called CoreCivic, or at least that's what they're called now. They rebranded a few years back after a ton of bad publicity related to poor treatment of incarcerated people in unsafe facilities. Shane Bauer wrote a book called American Prison about his experience as a CO at one of CoreCivic's prisons. The company was called CCA, or Corrections Corporation of America back then. It's a great book that I totally recommend to anyone looking for more information about the history of for-profit incarceration. Nowadays, profit comes from both the incarcerated workers, whose labor is contracted out to both private businesses and state industries, like license plate manufacturing, but also by the state, who pays a set amount for each incarcerated person and allows the private prison corporation to pocket any money they don't spend on their care. But why didn't we just stop locking so many people up if the state has to pay for them now? Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called The Tipping Point a decade or two back, and in it, he describes the way some phenomena get to a point where they can't be stopped. That's what happened after the final phasing out of convict leasing. We'd already reached a point in our country where mass incarceration was off and running. In 1980, the U.S. had 750,000 prisoners. By 1997, we had 1.7 million prisoners. And since the old methods of profiteering off prisoners had run into a ton of roadblocks based on human rights and goals of rehabilitation, states were in real trouble. In 1980, the budget for U.S. state and federal prisons was around $3 billion total. By 1994, it was more than $17 billion. Something had to give. A new private prison system offered a solution. Instead of the state paying X amount of dollars per prisoner to run its own facilities, they would instead pay that same amount to a private prison contractor who would then house, feed, and supervise those prisoners for the state. If the private prison could manage to eke out a profit by cutting corners, so be it. And eke out a profit they did. In 1997, CoreCivic, then called Corrections Corporation of America, charged the state just over $32 per prisoner. By 1997, that amount had gone up 33% to $1,000. In 
to more than $42 per prisoner, even though their cost for housing each prisoner only increased by around $2. Their revenue increased during that same time from $17 million per year to more than $460 million per year. And businesses only exploded since then. In 2021, CoreCivic made $1.86 billion in revenue. The immigration crisis has funded a whole new era of private prison industry, and CoreCivic isn't the only player in the game. The idea of someone making a profit off locking someone else up should raise the obvious question, then why aren't we just using that money to offer additional services and treatment that reduces recidivism? I mean, shouldn't the point of prison always be to make sure no one comes back? What the future holds for private prisons is up in the air. The federal system seems set on shifting back and forth from phasing out private prisons whenever Democrats are in power to doubling down on them whenever Republicans take over. And once something's politicized in this country, it usually picks up even more steam. The trick of working alongside capitalism instead of opposing it is also still alive and well. Private prison corporations aren't the only ones turning a profit in this new age of incarceration capitalism. Prison commissaries squeeze out about $1.6 billion in profits every year on incarcerated purchases. Telecommunications giants make around $1.2 billion per year on expensive phone calls, up to a dollar a minute. Incarcerated people are charged a fee to see a doctor in prison. And private healthcare provider Cortison Health, just one of many across the country, they brought in $1.4 billion in revenue in 2016 for contracted medical services provided to U.S. prisoners. And of course, then there's the $2 billion in goods produced each year by prison industries, which saves the state money and lines the pockets of private investors. It's a gimmick. If it wasn't, we would have updated the system a long time ago. We live in a country with one-fifth of the world's prisoners, even though we only have one-twentieth of the world's people. And around one-fifth of the people in state facilities and around half of people in federal prisons are there for drugs. But a huge chunk of those who aren't there for drugs are there for drugs, like I was. We aren't recorded as drug crimes because we're caught stealing or hustling to get money for drugs, but we're never caught with drugs. And as long as profit motives remain, we can never expect things to change from how they are right now. It's still legal to own stock in private prison corporations that you work for, even though your job requires you to discipline prisoners in ways that might result in them remaining in prison longer than they otherwise would, and in the process, increasing your stock's value. We can do better. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce. Unity and healing must begin with understanding and truth, not ignorance and lies. Today, I'm also issuing an executive order that will ultimately end the Justice Department's use of private prisons. Private prison company stocks jumped sharply on the morning after Donald Trump was elected president. The largest private prison company in America, CoreCivic, a.k.a. Corrections Corporation of America, saw its stock's price rise at 42 percent in the first the Attorney General minutes. to decline to renew contracts with privately operated criminal facilities 
This is the first step to stop corporation from profiting off of incarcerating incarceration that is less humane and less safe, as the studies show. And it is just the beginning of my administration's plan to address systemic problems in our criminal justice system.